Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. The week's most interesting interviews with senators, commentators, and newsmakers. Giving you a replay just in case you missed it. The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour on this Tuesday on The Guy Benson Show. Coming to you from Los Angeles, California. In fact, from our broadcast location, I can literally see the Hollywood sign, which is pretty cool. Thank you for being here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m., Eastern Time and also around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. That is our website. I'll be on Kennedy's show tonight on the TV side. That's in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. And this hour here on the radio is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. We encourage you to check it out. If you are 21 plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. With me now is someone whose name we said a lot on this show for month after month after month, particularly in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House coronavirus response coordinator, also a world-renowned medical expert and author of a new book out now called Silent Invasion, the untold story of the Trump administration, COVID-19, and preventing the next pandemic before it's too late. Dr. Burks, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you here. Glad to be with you. I want to just start with some big picture questions because you were in the thick of this. And obviously, particularly in those early days, things were awfully scary and there were many unknowns out there. And you and other doctors and medical experts were trying to get your arms around the problem and then convey sound medical advice to the public through the president, through various media channels, as you look back and as you were in the process of writing this book, Silent Invasion, what do you think in those early stages did you guys get right that was most important? And what, looking back retrospectively, do you think you got wrong that was most important? I think, right, we got a clear understanding that the country did not have the data streams and the capacity to really understand and be able to see where this virus was, and that caught us incredibly flat-footed. And even today, we don't have all the data streams up and transparently available to every American so that they can make decisions about their family of how to be safe in a time of COVID. So. The number one thing was data. I think we worked hard and we worked with the private sector. Um, Every private sector that I asked for came forward with the data that I needed. And I just, I've never really been in a pandemic. I've been in many in Sub-Saharan Africa where the private sector, um, just putting everything aside, came to help us from testing and Abbott and Roche and the amazing job they did sending me data to to Cardinal and McKesson and the big distributor companies that used our data to make sure that it got to the right people. That cannot be underestimated how many lives were saved in getting the right PPE tests, therapeutics, and then vaccines to the right people. 
I think the thing that the country got wrong then and continues to get wrong now is understanding the value of clear common sense communication um, and really making sure that every American understood um, what the risk was, how to assess that risk and make sure that they were assessing it correctly and had the information that they needed and then made sure that that translated into access um, to what they needed. And I think we are still not ensuring that rural America and in many specific urban pockets that those individuals have access to the tools and the treatments that they need today to save their lives. I think you're absolutely right about the risk assessment problem because we've seen it really in both directions, where some people, I think, made the wrong risk assessment, for example, on the vaccines. And I'm very much in favor of letting people make decisions for themselves. We were very pro-vaccine on this show. I got vaccinated. I, my, my mother got vaccinated. I had her on the show to talk about it. I also think that we sort of overcorrected in the other direction as well, where people were in the face of a lot of data, not just in the U.S., but around the world, were insisting that kids shouldn't be in classrooms, shouldn't be in schools, should still be wearing masks in schools. And I'm just trying to understand why is it that we seem to get so polarized where risk assessment and doing that sort of thing rationally seem to be a problem sort of at both poles of the very public and often very rancorous debate. Because you're not being transparent to the American people and around the globe of who is really at risk. Um, it, that is something that I feel is personally critically important. Um, when people say today, um, it is just as wrong today to say the risk to the average American and the case fatality rate is 0.3. It is not 0.3. Um, that's an average and it's a tyranny of averages. If you're over 70, your risk is probably 10 times that. And so for people over 70, what they have to think about is very different. If you have a child that has that just tends to get croup um, and is a bad crouper, saying that, you know, some of these variants are mild and only cause upper airway disease, you know, to a parent that has a child that develops severe croup, that is not mild. And so I just think we don't I, I've never met anyone, no matter where I've worked in the world, that can't understand fundamental data and why, why it's important and what it means to them personally. And it frustrates me when we try to dummy things down or create or give people partial information because we can't seem, seem to think that they can understand it. I'll give you one example of how crazy things got in the White House. So um, SAMHSA and the NIH were doing studies and analyzing the mental health of our children through June and July of 2020 and came out with a really terrific report on how children needed to be in school because of the not only the, the education, but the socialization and the peer support that occurs among children and that the children's mental health was deteriorating across the country. Um, they called me one day and said, the head of SAMHSA called me and said, I can't get CDC to take this guidance seriously and to integrate it into their school guidance. So I sent that to um, Bob Redfield, the head of the CDC, and I said, please have your teams look at this. I think it needs to be summarized in the introduction to the school guidance so that every parent can make decisions about what's best for their child weighing the risk of the virus against the risk of not being in school from 
not only education and food and all of those pieces, but the mental health of their child. They didn't. They wouldn't include it. They wouldn't include it. And when Can I just ask la- you, <laughs> yeah, doctor, just to jump in, I just want you to please repeat when was that that you said that was in 2020 that those June, findings June in and that July, st- June and July of 2020. So that was very, very early in this process, and it seems like there's been sort of a deluge, if you will, of exactly that sort of analysis coming out in late 2021 and early 2022, where people were saying, oh, look at these effects on our children. Isn't this terrible? Maybe we should have known this. It sounds like you're saying we did know it very early, certainly in time to save an entire school year in a lot of places, but that data was just ignored. Why? You know, I think um, this is a mistake we make every day. Um, If you believe that the Republicans don't have anything important to say, you don't listen and you completely disregard all that information and the vice versa. And I saw that play out over and over again. And when I went out to the states, and it's why I started going out to the states in June and July and then forward throughout the Paul pandemic, is to learn from local leaders because they are closer to the community and they understand their community. And I learned as much from Republican governors as I did from Democratic governors. And I think the CDC decided that SAMHSA wasn't worth listening to. And I think this is how we make mistakes every day at the national level and at the local level when we refuse to step back for a minute and say, does this person have something important to say that I can learn from? And I always learn from listening to people. And I think it it was a tragedy that, and I just want to applaud the schools that did open in the fall of 2020. I want to really applaud the universities, particularly the land-grant schools who understood how important education and that peer support was and who opened and brought their students back. I was privileged to be on over 30 campuses and really see what they did. They made it through. Um, Only the North Carolina system got into trouble, Um, but the rest of the systems, I worked with all of them, and they figured a way forward, and I was there to support them and listen to them and learn from them. And I think, you know, these are the stories that really need to be told, and that's why I wrote the book. And there were political leaders as well making those decisions that were very heavily criticized at the time on schools, for example. You're going to kill a bunch of kids. That turned out not to be true. And I think they deserve credit where they got things right. But it seems like we're not really interested in a lot of credit. We're interested in blame. And that's maybe part of human nature. I do want to ask you to maybe step away from the blame a little bit. I cut a lot of slack to people whether they're in a position like yours of great authority and expertise or, you know, all the way down the line in those first days, first weeks, first months of the pandemic where we were really trying to understand a lot of things still. If you could go back, doctor, and there would be one data point, a single data point or piece of information that you wish you had known with great clarity and confidence on day one of this pandemic that you think could have been a game changer as you reflect back, what would that be? I think um, research in behavioral science and how to effectively communicate with people um, and using whatever social platforms you need to get that information out consistently. 
I think we have ignored um, behavioral science and research into behaviors and understanding. We never studied why 50% of the adults never took our flu vaccine. We never studied to see, is it access? Do they not have a place to go to get it? Or do they have an issue with the flu vaccine? We, I can't tell you that today because those same issues persist. And so we have not done a good job um, as a country of really understanding decision-making among the American public. And I think um, if we had, we would have been much further ahead of the game in communicating effectively to, to so, Americans. So the data that you wish you had at the beginning was not about the virus itself, but about how to communicate about the virus? <laughs> Correct. Um, doing the background work that we should have been doing for for decades. How do we improve the health of Americans from obesity, hypertension, um, and diabetes? Those known risk factors to poor health and certainly made them extraordinarily susceptible to the virus. We did not, as a country, and CDC specifically, wasn't held accountable for improving the overall health of the of the country and also understanding the vaccine status of adults. And that would have gone a long way. I think my number one regret is saying no repetitively in January and February because I think, you know, coming the beginning of March, we were behind. If we had known the effectiveness of cloth mask at that time and if they had been studied by the CDC, if we had had testing available, there's so many what ifs <laughs> that could be protected. Right. But I I, what I worry about is we keep turning the page too quickly and not learning from the gaps that exist today. And that's why I keep bringing up tribal, the, tr the health of our tribal nations, the health in our rural American. Um, a rural American does not have the same access to primary care or, frankly, technical capacity that hospitals can deliver in urban areas. My guest is Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. Her new book is Silent Invasion. More with Dr. Burks on The Guy Benson Show after this break. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, we are joined by Dr. Deborah Burks. Let me ask you this, and I ask it from a place of respect. I think it's quite clear, just in public opinion, public behavior, there are many, many Americans who really don't trust a lot of the public health experts anymore. And I think some of that is deserved. I think some of that might be unfair, but it's also a reality. And just one example would be in the last few days, you had a ballroom filled with people at the White House Correspondents' Center, almost all of them not wearing masks. And many of those people in that ballroom are connected to an administration that is actively, per CDC recommendation, fighting in court to have mask mandates reinstated on airplanes, for example, which have good air circulation. I think a lot of people look at that and say, these two things don't really make sense together. It feels kind of ad hoc and incoherent still. I'm just going to ignore all of it. I wonder what you think of that. Is that a fair point, a fair place for many Americans to be, or is that too cynical? Now, the reason it's a fair place is because when people put out guidance without the evidence base, can you imagine buying something on Amazon without all of the descriptors and the comparators and understanding? Right, and um, reviews. You know, to be able to make that selection. Um, yes, all those things aren't perfect, but you put all that data together and you believe you've made the best decision possible. Because data today is still being withheld from the American people, and when I mean what is happening right now showing the rate of transmission to hospitals, 
individuals by age group so that people know who's really at risk, that's still not visible. The decision-making behind the mask efficacy data has still not been completely transparently put up there. So mm -hmm. I can understand, America, the, the telling, the implication that these vaccines were going to protect against infection when there was no evidence and the vaccines weren't studied for that. They were only studied to protect against severe disease and hospitalization. That's what the approvals were for. But then there was a mismatch implied. in expectations yes. there. Exactly. And that's what that's what fractures trust. When people can't make sense of it and it doesn't seem like it makes common sense and you don't provide the reasoning behind it and the evidence behind is able to do, end up fracturing trust with the American people. Dr. Deborah Burks, I want to ask you about this and I am not trying to pit you against Dr. Fauci. I do want to play a clip from Fauci recently. A judge, a federal judge in Florida, had ruled that the transportation mask mandate was not constitutional. It was thrown out. Fauci was asked about this on another network. Here was his response, cut 38. Both surprised and disappointed because those types of things really are the purview of the CDC. This is a public health issue. And for a court to come in, and if you look at the, the rationale for that, it really is not particularly firm. And we are concerned about that, about courts getting involved in things that are unequivocally public health decisions. I mean, this is a CDC issue. It should not, should not have been a court issue. So the issue that I have with that, doctor, is we live in a constitutional republic where we have a constitution, where we have rights, where the government can't just impose things on us at a bureaucratic level based on people's decisions, whether they're sound or not, who aren't elected. And I just wonder, without necessarily you know, getting into what you think of what Fauci said there, you're welcome to answer that if you'd like, what is the appropriate balance here in a country like ours for experts to look at data and come to conclusions and then try to enforce those conclusions as best they can in a way where there actually is still judicial review and people have rights. I just feel like a lot of folks will hear what Fauci said and recoil and say that might be what you want as an unelected public health bureaucrat, but that's also not where the authority in this country ultimately lies. What's the right balancing act on these considerations from your perspective? And, Doctor, I know that's a big question, and we're up on a break. So I'll let you think about it through the break and get your response when we return, if that's okay. Dr. Deborah Burks, my guest. Her book is Silent Invasion. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. We are back on The Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles. Our guest is Dr. Deborah Burks former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, author of the new book, Silent Invasion. And, Doctor, right before the break, I asked you this question based on a soundbite from Dr. Fauci about your approach to balancing public health guidance and interests from an expert's perspective, someone who isn't elected, and then protecting our constitutional system and individual liberties when those two things might be in tension. It's a broad challenge, but what's your response to that? So this gets back to that whole issue that I started out with, the mistakes that we keep making by not making all the information available on all the different platforms that people utilize to make decisions. And so let's be very clear about what different kinds of masks can do and where the risk actually is. And so I don't know if that was submitted to the judge for consideration, but that's what we need to do to be transparent to the American people, because people will make the right decision 
for them and their family if we give them enough information. And that's what makes America unbelievably great is our creativity, our innovation, our ability to understand complex things and come to correct conclusions. And so I think it's as you describe what should be provided to every American is where is the risk and what is your personal risk and the people who are with you? When I was talking about croup and young people, when I'm talking about the elderly and their extraordinary risk because they don't make good immune responses to vaccines or even to this virus. So making sure that it's clear where is the risk actually the greatest? It's probably in the terminals and boarding the plane when they don't have any of the you know, when you sit there and it's 85 degrees and you know that there's no mm-hmm. ventilation on, that's right. a risk factor. So, you know, this is people will make the right decision for them and their families. And then what we need to do also is respect those who are wearing a mask. I have to wear a mask and I have to wear a high grade mask because I'm a care provider to my 93 year old mother and I was to my 96-year-old father and I am to three grandchildren under five. That's my reality. That doesn't that doesn't make some it's someone else's reality. That's my right, personal it's not mine. reality. Yeah, exactly. So I know that I have this risk and there's 14 of us in this family that share that risk and no one has gotten COVID. We all work. We all work outside of the home, but we're all utilizing the tools that are available to us because we can afford them and we can utilize them. So what I know is if we make things available to the American people so that they can have what they need to protect them and their families, they will make the right decision. Two more questions. One is about your role at the White House. It must have been surreal, honestly, and I actually wrote a piece defending you. Gosh, early 2021, I don't even remember when it was, but you were such a lightning rod for criticism because there were people, because so much of this was political and got very political very quickly. There were people who were accusing you of being sort of like this sycophant or this lackey for Trump, and they're like, get her out of there. She's not really an expert. People who would have never questioned your credentials ever but because you were their advice president they despised, that sort of rubbed off on you, and there was a lot of vitriol directed at you. And then at some point, sort of the worm turned, and a lot of the incoming fire was from the other side of the political spectrum. There might have been some fair criticism when you went off to the second home right around the holidays, and people said that was hypocrisy. You can address that if you'd like to here. But living in that white hot spotlight with so much political sort of ferocity injected into all of it i just wonder what that was like and if you've sort of stopped your head from spinning yet having lived through that (laughs) you know i had the advantage of working on pandemics around the globe for decades working with presidents and prime ministers and ministries of health you know, who didn't want to address the pandemic that they had. They wanted to address a pandemic that was kinder, gentler, or more consistent with their politics. And that's just not what you can do in a pandemic. So I'm, I wasn't surprised that things were political. I, I was surprised um, that the reporting wasn't always um, fact-based um, and that, um Yes, my husband and I married just before the pandemic. Our goal was to have a home where everybody could come 
um, including, you know, had enough space. We didn't have that home. We got a second home at the beach. The people who were criticizing me were the same people who had second and third homes that they were going to every weekend. Um, I hadn't gone to the home before. This was my first visit. I wanted to make sure it was um, good and it was no one living there. No one had been in that place for almost two months. Um, and we went in a two and a half hour drive by car, no stops. I took all the food with us and we were essentially quarantined in this home. The people that would, what hurt me about that is for anyone to think, that I would put my grandchildren, my pregnant daughter who was seven months pregnant, or my mother and father at 93 and 96 at risk. Of course not. I would never do that. Um, and well, I on haven't, substance. and that's why they're not infected yet. So, everything you know, everything I that you just said, ever. right, on substance, point after point there, that all makes sense. Knowing what we know, it's like, okay, you did actually fairly reasonable things, and you took precautions, and it was basically a quarantine. I get all of that. I guess the argument is you were urging people to limit their holiday travel. This, at least from an optics perspective, looked like maybe you weren't practicing what you preach. Even though the substance that you just said still holds, do you regret doing it just from the optics standpoint because it gave people that opportunity to say, aha, she doesn't even really believe this stuff? So I think what the problem is, the reason that we were telling people, and I wasn't telling people not to travel. I was telling people not to gather. And that, and we didn't gather. That was my household pod that I had been with since July. Um, I did not gather outside of the household. My other daughter, who lives two minutes from me, um, was on the deck in a mask. The food was passed outside to her. So, I mean, you know, I think it wasn't the travel that was when I got on TV that I was talking about. It was the gathering, bringing households together. That's where the risk is. It doesn't, um, the virus isn't transmitted from the furniture. It's transmitted from people getting together. And maybe I was inarticulate about that. I, I really, I didn't hide the fact that I was going there because I did a media hit that weekend that said across mm -hmm. the bottom, Shelbyville, Delaware. So it's not that I was trying to hide anything from the American people. What I most, what I was most concerned about is if people interpret that to give themselves license or believe that I was having a double standard, I deeply regret that. And I cover that in the book, mm -hmm. but as all, I, I'm not perfect. I mean, I just want to make it clear. I have never been perfect. I'm learning every day. I try not to make the same mistake twice. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> um, and so you never heard that issue come up again, but I think you know, I, I learned from my experience in the White House. Um, I will value the lessons that I learned from that. Are we collectively as a society now in the endemic stage of this, and should we adjust and behave accordingly? You know, here here's the issue, um, I, I, and I am not one to just use words to give people a reason to do less, because what I think what is really critical right now is we make sure that every American can know what's happening so that they can protect themselves and their family. I do believe we do have the tools for all of us to survive. I don't believe everybody has has access. And I think that's a tragedy. I think it has to be immediately fixed. We ought to be looking at every hospitalization and every fatality from COVID as a lesson that needs to be learned and a solution found. 
so that every single case is investigated so that we can prevent the next, next case. That's what you need to do. I just don't see us doing it right now, and I think that that's a mistake. There's a way to make this into a place where Americans can not only survive but thrive, but we're not even to a place where every American can survive, and I think that's on us as public health individuals. It's on us as um, governments to really ensure that we have in place the safety nets. I loved it when Governor Ivey explained this to me. She said, you know, I look at the whole pandemic as a creating a safety net like Swiss cheese. So you put that first Swiss cheese down, there's a lot of holes. Um, then you layer on another layer of um, tools and solutions for your people, covers up more of the holes. You add one more like vaccines and boosters, and it covers up more holes. And then when the end, you look down and there's no more holes. I just think that's common sense. People know that during a surge in their community that they have to layer on protection if they have vulnerable family members. And finally, what I really want to say is let's – just not be worried about the acute disease. Let's make sure that we're protecting our family members from long COVID and whatever we need to do to prevent that and the cardiovascular late effects and the late brain effects. So this, I, to me, it doesn't matter if you call it pandemic or endemic. What I can tell you is 50 years later, we still have and we're still dealing with HIV, which is also an RNA virus. I wouldn't be so quick to turn the page. There's a way to make this better. We demonstrated that with HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa. There's a way to do it here in America. Lastly, and very quickly, people were infatuated when you were on TV every day with your scarves. And have you had anyone approach you about creating a Dr. Deborah Burke's line of scarves by any chance? Well, I would love to do that to recognize women in science um, because I actually, the scarves come out of a very practical solution of spending four to six weeks on the road, often in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, and taking three black dresses and 28 scarves and putting it in my little <laughs> carry-on and, and being highly successful. <laughs> Interesting. All right, that, that makes perfect sense. Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. She's a medical expert. She's traveled the world, as we just heard. She's out with a new book, Silent Invasion, the untold story of the Trump administration, COVID-19, and preventing the next pandemic before it's too late. It's available now. Dr. Burks, we appreciate your time. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Great questions. Really appreciate the dialogue. Likewise, and thanks for coming on. Hopefully we'll have you back at one of these points when things calm down for you, if that ever happens. Dr. Deborah Burks on The Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour, and we will be right back. That was this week's edition of The Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. For more Guy Benson Show, go to GuyBensonShow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.